Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. All right, well, I'm going to preach to you a little bit this morning. Is that okay? All right, good. We started a series a couple of weeks ago titled This Side of the Cross. And I want to invite you this morning to turn to two passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is the first. And the second, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I want to do just a second of review, and then we'll make our declaration, our, our faith declaration that we make on Sundays, and then I'll pray over you and we'll, we'll preach. 2 Corinthians five seventeen, Romans 8, 1. Just a quick moment of review. We talked last week about the reality that God is after our hearts. God is after a new heart. That uh, Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36 that with a new that the Lord would take out uh, our old heart of stone and give us a new heart of flesh. We said that spiritually before Christ versus after Christ is not a is not merely a difference of good and evil, but it's a difference of death and life. According to Ephesians chapter 2, before we come to know the saving grace and the saving power of Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's why Ezekiel in in Ezekiel 36 uses the language of of a stone heart. Because a stone represents something that is dead. We were born dead when we came into this world. And God from the day, from day one, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God has been after a new heart. He's wanted to see a new heart in people. So now that we know Jesus, he gives us a new heart. He gives us a new nature. He takes out the old heart of stone, gives us a new heart of flesh, and our hearts are to serve him. We said that now on this side of the cross and on this side of salvation, everything is from the inside out. I talked to you about being three-part beings, spirit, soul, and body. I had my family come up here and demonstrate and illustrate what that looked like. We are a spirit, we have a soul, we live in a body, and we're designed by God to operate from our spirit outward rather than from the outside in. The world spends its time fulfilling the desires of the flesh first. We as Christians are called to do it the other way around. We said that now that our hearts are new, when we sin, this is why it hurts. It creates conflict within us because we violate our own, the the nature that God put in us. We violate our own hearts. And as a result of that, we feel guilt. I said that guilt, the Bible has a word for guilt. It's the word conviction. It's the awareness that we missed it. It's the awareness that we sinned, that we fell short. And it's that conviction that is supposed to draw us back into the arms of Jesus to come back to him and to say, Lord, I missed it. I thank you that your blood is stronger. Your grace and your mercy are stronger than any mess that I can make. And we come back to the Lord. 
We said that when that doesn't happen, when we don't yield to conviction, the result is what started as guilt becomes shame. And if guilt is the awareness of my sin, shame is the weight of my sin. And too many people live unnecessarily under the weight of shame. Jesus, when he came to the cross, brought your sin with him, but also brought your shame with him too. And you can live free of shame this morning. Amen. Isn't that good news? So I want to pick up from there in just a second. Let's make our faith declaration that we make, and then I'm going to pray over you, and and we'll get into today. If you can see this, declare this over your, your life this morning. Say, thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you, my heart and mind perceive. Today I am growing in the things of God. Father, we thank you this morning for another opportunity to come before your word and receive the riches of the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that the Bible says in the book of Psalms, the entrance of your word brings light. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing light into our hearts this morning. Thank you, God, for illuminating our hearts with light that we might see what you want us to see and learn what you want us to learn this morning. We give you the thanks and praise for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We've been quoting this scripture as our main text. And I want to start there. And then I want to look at Romans 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us unto himself and given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them, and has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We, rec- we, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an amazing reality that to this day, no matter how many times I read that verse, blows me away. That God made Jesus sin so that he could make me righteous. It's amazing. Theologians refer to it as the substitutionary work of Calvary's cross. Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice, becoming literally the thing which God detests, which is sin. Imagine, if you would, for a moment, the... The the reality of this, that the word of God made flesh, the son of God in the flesh, who was in perfect harmony and union with the father and the spirit for all of eternity past, suddenly actually becomes the thing that God cannot live with. 
amazing. God in his perfection cannot live around sin. Or let me put it to you this way, the other way around. Sin cannot live around God's perfection. The two come to a head and one of the two is going to give and we know which one gives. That's why people who had sin in their lives when they encountered the presence of God in the Old Testament so often, they died. Why? Because they were sinful. And the sin in them came in contact with the holy God, a perfect God, and their life ended. That's what happened to Jesus. He, he became sin for us and substituted himself in our place so that we might become the actual literal righteousness of God in Christ. What a thought to be right with God. Amen. So many times religion has us convinced that we're just a worm of the dust. You know, we look at some like Old Testament language and we, we see those kinds of things. And, and we, we, we quoted, I quoted to you Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, which says that the, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Well, I'm here to tell you that that was your heart. But once you give your heart to Christ, your heart's not desperately wicked anymore. Amen. You actually want to serve God once you're saved. Amen. Isn't that cool? That's why it comes as such a surprise and such a shock sometimes for people to give their life to Christ when they're suddenly amazed at the fact that they have no desire, no propensity for sin anymore the way they used to. I can remember the testimony of my parents when they gave their lives to Jesus. And, and both my parents had, were, were doing, doing a lot of sinning before they came to Jesus. And uh, my dad in particular was, was on a lot of drugs and was, was really engulfed in that lifestyle. But once he gave his life to Jesus, it's as though all of that stuff just fell right off of him. And from the inside out, he said, I, I actually love God now. I don't want these things anymore. It's pretty amazing. Go, me, go with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. I want to pick up on this idea of shame no longer being a part of your life if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer this morning, that's okay. You're in church. We can fix that. Amen? <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. How I would love to spend time in the entire book of Romans, or the entire chapter, but we're going to just look at this verse first today. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now, how much condemnation? No, no condemnation. Let's just stop there for a second. I'll, I'll finish quoting the verse here in a second, but I just want to stop at that word no, because it's, um, it's pretty profound when you do a, a, a Greek search and you find out that no in Greek means the same thing as no in English, and that is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You know me, I like to dig into the original language to find little hidden nuggets. There's no hidden nugget here. It means no, okay? No means no in every language, okay? There is no condemnation. How much? No condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This walk according to the flesh versus walk according to the Spirit, that's what we were talking about last week, where the Holy Spirit's leading your spirit and your, your soul and your body are just following in suit. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. And Paul is teaching us a principle here that has to become foundational to our lives. This has to become settled in our thought life. That there is, therefore, now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ. If you walk with the Lord, the devil has no right to condemn you. Oh, but pastor, you don't know I, I messed up so badly last night. There is therefore now no condemnation. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. I, 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 I'm in a relationship that I don't need to be with, be in. I'm selling myself way short, pastor. You don't understand. God's not happy with me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Pastor, you just don't know how many times. Pastor, I robbed a bank. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something dramatic. <laughs> Pastor, I did something terrible. You have no idea. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I, I, I'm here to tell you, I, I always want to be on the side of mercy. Because I've realized this in my own life, especially the older I get and raising children and, and, and pastoring a church and dealing with people. The older I get, the more I realize I want to be on the side of mercy. You know why? Because God's always on the side of mercy. And if I'm always on the side of mercy, I'm always on the side of God. Amen. There's no condemnation. And here's the beautiful thing. What that means is there's no mess that you that God's mercy can't forgive. Doesn't matter how big the mess. Doesn't matter how big the junk. Anybody got any junk? Amen. Once again, just me and Frankie raising our hands. That's cool. I'm good with it. You got some skeletons in your closet. We all do. Anybody in here perfect? No. Everybody's fallen. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. Sin has impacted the life of every person at some point in their lives. But the reality is the beauty of the gospel and the thing that makes it such good news is that God is holding back no condemnation towards you. He actually forgave you of your sin. And here's the thing. When he forgave you of your sin, he actually forgave you and he actually thinks you're forgiven. You might not, but as far as he's concerned, it's settled. There was a song that came out, and I don't listen to a lot of Christian radio um, just because I'm weird, but I, there was a song that was on Christian radio when I was in high school, and I'm trying to remember the name of the artist. If you know, shout it out. But it was, it was What Sin? The song was What Sin with a question mark. And, and, and the, the song was talking about this guy going before the Lord and just pouring out all of his sin and all of his guilt and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm so wretched. And God's response in the song was, what sin? The line goes, it was gone the very minute you confessed. You see, we, we drag around this consciousness of all the sin and all the failure and all the times we made mistakes. How many of you have ever done this? You get ready to pray for somebody, and all of a sudden, everything you ever did wrong in your life comes up in your mind. Anybody besides me? Y'all don't know what it's like to stand up here on a hope and healing night and get ready to lay hands on people to get, to get healed and to get saved and delivered, and all of a sudden, the devil's coming up. You know, you talked rudely to your wife this morning. You remember that time in high school? Get ready to lay hands on somebody to receive, you know, the baptism of the Spirit or to get filled with God or to get healed. Somebody's here and, and this is their moment where they really need God to make, a, make an impact in their life. And the enemy's coming to my mind going, what about this? What about that? What about the time you did X, Y, Z? 
telling you, you've got to get this settled in your thinking. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let me read this to you in a couple translations. Because I, 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 I don't know that we really understand how free we actually are in Christ. The J.B. Phillips New Testament says, No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Jesus Christ. The Amplified says it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him as personal Lord and Savior. The Passion Translation, my least favorite, says, just kidding. I like to make fun of the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation says, so now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One. It is impossible to condemn a man, woman, or child who is in Christ because you and I, the moment we come into, in union with Jesus, you and I are now off limits to the enemy. On the old covenant side of the cross, remember, remember what the title of this series is? This side of the cross, right? On the old covenant side of the cross, there was no way to outrun the condemnation of sin. On this side of the cross, there is no condemnation. The best we could hope for under the old covenant would be to enjoy the benefits of having our sins covered. On this side of the cross, we enjoy the benefits of having our sins removed. Wow. Let me say that to you again because it's just so profound. The best we could hope for under the old covenant would be to enjoy the benefits of having our sins covered. On this side of the cross, we enjoy the benefits of having our sins removed. It's so beautiful and precious to be righteous in the sight of God. Amen. Hallelujah. The Greek word here in Romans chapter 8-1 for condemnation is the Greek word katakrimi. Let's all say that together. Just kidding. Just kidding. Katakrimi. It's, it's a combination of two words, krime and kata. And the word kata means from above. And, and to me, that's the most important part of understanding condemnation is that word kata, that prefix in the Greek, okay? Katakrimi, it's a compound word which means to judge and accuse from above. And this is what the devil tries to do to you and I. Now, I want to illustrate this for a second because I've been on an illustration roll lately. Noah, come here. Come here, bud. You stand right here. And you turn and face everybody, okay? Noah is the model Christian, okay? He just does everything right. He's so perfect. You're perfect, aren't you? Pretty fantastic, yeah. He's the, he's the model Christian, okay? Now listen, to accuse, in order to condemn him, what I would have to do is be above him and hail down accusation at him. This is what the enemy tries to do 
to you. Judgment and, con and condemnation. I'm probably giving the guys with the camera a conniption from getting on this chair. But uh, this is what condemnation look like, looks like. It's an assault of accusation from above. It's, it's the enemy posturing himself and saying, hey, look here. Look here, buddy. You messed up. And he's going to throw the book at you from above like a judge in a courtroom. Every time the enemy tries to come at you with some junk from your past, I want you to think about this for a second and recognize that this is what he's trying to do. Okay? All right, thanks, bud. You can go sit down. You'll be back up here in just a couple minutes, though. Fair warning. You see, the Bible says that what I just illustrated of condemnation that there actually is none of that. It doesn't say that you shouldn't feel condemnation. It says that there actually is none. See, when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor, and my, I grew up around preachers, you know, and, and uh, I, I heard that scripture so much. And the way I used to hear it was this way. There's therefore now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Here's how I would hear it. Oh, Josh, you shouldn't be so down in the mouth. Every time you mess up, you shouldn't feel bad because there's no condemnation. That's how I heard it. Almost like a word of encouragement as opposed to a statement of fact. The Bible's not, now this, this verse is very encouraging, don't get me wrong. But the, the purpose of that being written the way it is, is not merely to encourage us in our faith, but to tell us of the reality of what really is. Not that, hey, you shouldn't feel bad for your sin. What he's saying is, there's actually no condemnation that can come against you. Let me say it again because I don't think you got it. It's, it's, it's more than just to encourage us to believe that we should, that we should be okay because we're forgiven and, and don't get down in the mouth when you make a mistake. What Paul is really trying to tell us is that we are so free in Christ that it's impossible to condemn us. Ay, 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 ay. We are so free in Christ Jesus, it's actually impossible to bring a charge against you. There was a guy, huh, there was a guy in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, in New York City, who was a mob boss. And if you know me, you know that I love the mafia. I, I mean, I don't actually love the mafia, I just love learning stuff about the mafia the Godfather's my favorite movie. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. But there was a guy. I, I like to like read about mafia history and stuff. There was a guy in the 80s and 90s named John Gotti. How many of you are familiar with John Gotti? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what John Gotti's nickname was? Anybody know what they... Brian Jones seems to have the answer. The Teflon Don, there it is. The word Don was a word of admiration for people that were the head of a, of a mafia family. And, and John Gotti was called the Teflon Don because every time there was an indictment against him, it wouldn't stick. And Teflon at that time was becoming a big thing in the world of frying pans. 
and, and, and you know, non-stick pans. So they called Gotti the Teflon Don because they're like, every time we try to pin something to this guy to accuse him and pin him down, it just slides right off. We can't get this guy. And I want to tell you this morning with no sense of irreverence, you're the Teflon Don, baby. There is no condemnation. There's zero accusation that even has an opportunity to stick to you because of who you are in Christ. You need to live a life in full understanding and full awareness that no matter what the enemy tries to accuse me of, it's going to slide right off. Why? Because I'm so great? No, because Jesus made you righteous because he became your sin that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's so good. Hallelujah. So let me ask you this question. Why is there no condemnation to those who are in Christ? I want to take a moment and just think about it because, because sometimes what we do is we hear, a, we hear a principle like that and we go, that's really good. And then we go off into our lives and we try to live by it. But if we don't know the why, we'll, we'll be easily convinced that it's not true. How many of you have ever done that before? You go to church, you hear something, you're like, this is really good. And then you just leave it at that. You're, you accept it, you believe it, and you begin to walk in it. And then when the enemy comes to try to pressurize that and put some pressure on you, it's easy to just be convinced that what you heard wasn't true. I know that I've been there many times. So let me ask you, why is it that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ? I want to give you two ironclad reasons. Reason number one, why there's no condemnation against those who are in Christ. Because to condemn you or I would also be to condemn Jesus. In order to get, a, in order to get an accusation that would stick... In order, to, in order to actually condemn someone who's a Christian, you would actually have to also be condemning of Jesus. You would have to say that Jesus' work on the cross was not complete enough. Wow. Again, I don't think we realize how free we actually are in Christ. In order to condemn you or I, reason number one, in order to condemn you or I, we would, the enemy would also have to be condemning of Jesus. See, here's the reality. We are in such perfect union with Christ that to condemn one is to also condemn the other. You've got to understand how God actually sees the church and Jesus and that relationship. The Bible teaches us and tells us that we are the bride of Christ. That means we are in perfect union with him. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus? You remember him? You remember what happened? He was on his way to imprison and kill Christians in the city of Damascus. He had paperwork that said, I can go into this city, take all the Christians hostage and kill them. And he was planning on it. And what happened on the road to Damascus? How many Bible nerds remember what happened in Acts chapter 9? He, he had an encounter with the risen Christ. 
Jesus appeared to him on the road. The Bible, he, Luke, the, Luke is writing about it, and he says, There shone a light that was brighter than the noonday sun, and Paul fell to the ground and had an encounter with the Lord Jesus. And what was the question that Jesus asked Paul? Do you remember? This is very important. Paul, Paul, I'm going to quote it to you in the old King James just to make you feel really sanctimonious. Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? Or in other words, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Can I ask you a question? Was, Jesus, was Paul persecuting Jesus? No, who was he persecuting? Christians. That question in and of itself is so pregnant with reality that it's easy, to, it's easy to just pass over it and miss it altogether. God considers Jesus and the church to be the same entity. I'm not saying you're Jesus. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm saying that we're his bride, which means we're in union with him to the degree that what you do to one, you do to the other. What did, listen, you can't escape this reality. No matter how hard it is to wrap your head around it, it's all over in the Bible. What did, what did Paul say, or excuse me, what did Jesus say when um, uh, Philip asked him, show us the Father in John chapter 17? He said, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And he said, how long must I be with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, all throughout the scripture, the Bible's teaching us that we are so woven together with Christ that what you do to one, you do to the other. Wasn't it, wasn't it Jesus that said, what you do to the least of these, you do it unto me? See, we think of that as metaphorical. Jesus doesn't. He actually thinks he's in perfect union with you. He actually thinks that when you said yes to him, you came into a covenant relationship that is forever. So reason number one why you can't condemn a Christian is because to condemn you would be to also condemn Jesus. Look at Romans. Let me prove it to you from Scripture. Look at Romans 8, same chapter, verse 31, and then verse 34. This is amazing. Y'all still with me? All right, we're going a little deep this morning. Getting a little Bible nerdy. Okay? Get excited about it. Here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This, again, this is not a rhetorical question. I mean, it is, but Paul's also asking, can you find somebody that can be against us if we're in Christ? If God is for me, literally, who can be against me? I dare you to find somebody. Can't happen. Skip down to verse 34. This is just for time's sake, but look what he says. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who is he that condemns? Who would have the boldness and the gall to try to condemn the one who died, Christ? You see, we're in such union with him that to condemn him would be to, or to condemn us would be to condemn him. Reason number two, why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
is that the devil will never actually be in position to condemn anyone. You remember my illustration with Noah a few moments ago? By definition, condemnation has to come from above. Let's do it again, Noah. Let's show him real quick what it looked like. Let's show him real quick what it looks like. Noah's the Christian. He's the body of Christ. And here I am, the devil, trying to posture myself to speak down to him. To issue judgment and accusation against him. However, let me read to you. Stay right there, bud. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, it's about to get real good. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Get up there. The devil will never be in position to actually condemn anything because according to the definition of the word, condemnation has to come down from above. And can I tell you, the devil is under your feet. He has seated us God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. The Bible says, far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominions and everything that's named, this is where the devil perpetually and permanently lives. Under your feet. Amen. See, it's impossible. Thanks, bud. It's impossible to condemn a believer because in order to do that, you'd both have to get out of position. And do you know what Romans 8 says? It says that neither death nor life, principality, power, nor breath, nor height, nor depth, nothing can separate me from the love of God. There's nothing that can change my position except for me. Hmm. So the devil has no right to condemn you. It doesn't mean that he won't try. But he's actually lost all the ability to do it. He's like the dog with the loud bark and no teeth. Did you ever see one of them little chihuahuas with no teeth? You know what I'm talking about? One of them little raspy little things. Look like a, you know, squirrel on creatine. You know what I'm talking about? I used to work with a guy who used to call them ankle biters. Like they, they can't do anything to you. They just make a lot of noise. Why is it the smallest dogs are always the ones that act the toughest? I preached, a, I, preached a, I preached a message one time called Honey, I Shrunk the Devil. Y'all remember the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from back in the 80s? Jesus shrunk the devil, man. The Bible says he stripped him of all of his power. He stripped him of all of his authority. He took everything away from him that he actually had and reduced him down to size, so much so that the book of Ezekiel tells us that in the end, when this is all over, we're going to look at the devil and scratch our heads and say, is this the one? 
who plagued the nations. This little weakling, this little Decepticon, who all he had was a lie to work with, Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. The only tools that he has to work with are lies. You are seated with Jesus. He is under your feet. So he has no right to condemn you. He will try to accuse, but listen to what Revelation 12 says. I'm going to close with this. Revelation 12, 9 through 11, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, says this. It says, The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before God night and day. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. For they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. I want you to imagine a courtroom and God the Father is the judge. There's a new TV show on called Jury Duty, which Christy Mercer convinced my wife and I to start watching. And it is quite funny. And the judge on this show is the perfect judge. It's, it's, you got to watch it. It's quite funny. But I want you to imagine a courtroom for a second. But instead of Judge Judy, there's God the Father, judge of the universe. And the devil is the prosecuting attorney. And he's over here with, you know, exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C and exhibit, you know, however many things that he has on you. And he's pressured you with temptation. He came into your life. He, he got you to fall and give in. And now you'd think that would be enough to get him to leave you alone. You know, the enemy comes after you and he's just, he's just going to try to get you with temptation. And so, you know, every now and again we fall and we fail. And so we, we fail. I gave in to the enemy. I told a lie. And if that wasn't enough, he's going to hang around and start to accuse you of doing the thing he tempted you to do. What a jerk. Right? What a jerk. That'd be like you telling somebody, hey, come over here, and then when they get there, you slap them. <laughs> I'm going to take it out on you for doing the exact thing I just asked you to do. What a jerk. I tell you, man, the devil is a, he's such a, anyways, a loser. So, so here it is. He's, he's pressured you. He's tempted you, and, and you gave in, and now here you are in the courtroom looking like Linus from Charlie Brown. And, and there's the enemy hurling accusation after accusation of it. You did this. You did it again. You fell again. Can't believe you. You're supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to love Jesus. Can't believe you, you bag of worms. You're a piece of garbage. I mean, he'll just unload. And now Jesus is over here on the other side, and he's the defense attorney. He's the advocate. And what I love about this picture, when I imagine this taking place in a courtroom, here's the way I see it happening. 
The enemy's over there preaching his very best sermon about how terrible you are. And he's got all the exhibits, all the pictures, all the evidence. And he gets done doing his thing. And the judge turns and looks over at Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even speak. He just holds up a hand. And in the middle of that hand's a big hole where there once was a nail. And then he puts his hand down. And that's it. And then God turns and looks at you and says, how do you plead? And if you're smart, you say, I plead the blood of the Lamb. Why? Why does the Bible in Revelation 12 say it that way? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You see the enemies over here hurling accusations at you? And Jesus is over here going, there's a nail print for that. There's another nail print for that. There's a couple more in my feet. You remember what he said to Thomas in the upper room? He said, oh, Thomas, come here, come here. Put your fingers in the print. Put your fingers in the place that they, that they pierced me. As far as Jesus is concerned, the case was closed 2,000 years ago when he said, it's finished, it's finished, it's finished. Oh, it's finished. Oh, the enemy, what a blockhead. He can't seem to get the point. It's finished. He can't seem to, he keeps forgetting, you guys got amnesia. He keeps forgetting that it was finished. And, and the best that he can do is just to try to make your life miserable while you're on your way to heaven by just trying to convince you that it's not finished. To try to convince you that what Jesus did was not enough. And that's why Revelation says it so beautifully. They overcame him, number one, by the blood of the lamb, by the nail print. And number two, by the word of their testimony. I'm here to tell you this morning, God the Father is asking you a question, and that question is, how do you plead? I plead the blood. I plead the blood. You know what God does when you plead the blood? Courtroom adjourned. Not guilty. Get out of here. I want to tell you this, and I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. The one who is trying to condemn you doesn't have the right to do so. And the only one who has the right to condemn you has chosen not to. <laughs> Case closed. Case closed. Oh, you may have messed up a thousand times on the way to church this morning. Case closed. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. Can you stand up to your feet this morning? Oh,
Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.